Luke 17, 20 through 37. Read along with me if you would. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And then he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And people will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first... It's a big verse here. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating, people were drinking, buying and selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. She turned back. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I'm going to argue this morning, as a main point, as as sort of a thesis, I guess, of this sermon, in a nutshell, that the king, the king of the kingdom, seeks maximum glory. And so what are you going to do about it? The king seeks maximum glory, and the challenge is, what are you going to do about it? Now, this is a hard passage. We're dealing with the kingdom of God here. There's a lot of implications and things going on in this passage. Uh, I'm going to build up to this argument that I'm going to make here about the king seeking maximum glory. This is not going to be a morning where I'm going to share a few words from Jesus, and we're going to make a quick application to our lives, an immediate practical application for how we do this. This morning, we really are going to have to uh, strap on your thinking caps, you know, roll up your sleeves, or in K-Man, your proverbial sleeves, since, you know, no one wears long sleeves at church, right? And, and we're really going to have to get to work on this passage. All right, so I'm going to help, try to help us 
go through this passage together, but we're going to certainly be in need of the Lord's help. So let's pray to him this morning. Spirit, this is a, um, in many ways, a daunting passage, talking about something as immense and grand as your kingdom. We ask this morning that you would give us discernment from above. That you would give us glasses to see. That you would bring out your giant highlighter through the Holy Spirit. And open our eyes to these words. May they stand out to us in a way they never have before. That the King might receive maximum glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This idea of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, isn't exactly as relatable as it used to be, right? Probably in Jesus' day, at least. In our day and age, there are less than 20 functional, sort of full-blown monarchies that exist in our world. And unless you come from a place like Cambodia, Lesotho, Jordan, or Swaziland, you know, Knowing, identifying with a full-blown, fully functional monarchy, it's, it's not going to be as identifiable to you. As the human heart has grown progressively more wicked, or maybe we've just done a better job of noticing that it's growing wicked, the idea of this benevolent monarchy, we've heard of this, right? The benevolent king, the benevolent monarchy, kind of foolish, kind of seems impossible. Thinking of one person ruling an entire nation, it's loco. It's crazy, man. But there is still something so pure, isn't there, so right about the idea of a king, one king to rule a people. The nobility is the nobility of this idea is why kids, children, love to pretend they're kings and queens, right? Princes and princesses. And you might say, well, that's because kids just want to pretend they're in charge, which they do often. They only have to dress up like a king. Now I think it's part of it, but it's not all of it. Otherwise, my kids would be saying things like, hey, I want to be the dictator today. Or, Gage, you be the despot. <laughs> Here. All right? They don't say these things, right? No one wants to be a dictator growing up. No one wants to be a despot. There's still something so noble, seems so right about this idea of a king. And we find, I think, this rightness, this sense of hope in the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. While not as relatable, the idea of a kingdom of God, it still holds out this hope that resonates with us. So I want to talk a little bit this morning about a few things. I'm going to give you a few things about the kingdom this morning. We're going to talk about the Pharisees' idea of the kingdom versus Jesus' idea. We're going to talk about Jesus' fulfillment of the kingdom come. And we're going to talk about what's so surprising about Jesus' kingdom. It's the very thing that draws us to him.
That's where we're going this morning. The kingdom of God, for a brief definition, is this. It is the reign exercised by God the Father through Christ over all creation. Not just human beings, through all of creation. And this reign exists now, but will be fully consummated when the Son of God returns. It'll fully come to fruition. It'll be fully visible when Jesus returns. Now in this passage, Jesus answers a very important question, an age-old question about this kingdom. That is the question, is it here already? Or is it not yet? Is this kingdom here already? Or is it not yet? In fact, Jesus divides his speech according to this idea of already, not yet. The first paragraph, you see here in the first few verses, Jesus says the kingdom is here already. It's in your midst. It's right in front of you. But in the second, much longer paragraph, he's saying, man, boy, but it's really going to come with all the fireworks and pyrotechnics when the Son of Man returns in the future. So this kingdom is both now and not yet. I know that's, we got to wrap our minds around that. That's pretty hard to understand. But there's a sense in which it is very much here now. But it's still sort of veiled. Its fullness will come when Jesus returns. Far more, far more important and pertinent for our discussion this morning and indeed our very lives is this idea, this, this idea of the Pharisees' understanding of the kingdom versus Jesus' understanding of the kingdom. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. The Pharisees' understanding of the kingdom versus Jesus' idea of the kingdom. It is a true royal rumble. Right? Royal rumble in the jungle. (laughs) Boom! Because when the Pharisees asked about the kingdom in verse 20, Jesus doesn't answer their question directly, does he? Because he knows there's something about the way you're asking that question. You have a certain idea of the kingdom, and I'm going to challenge that. Right, Jesus does this a lot. How often, in fact, how often do we see someone actually ask a question and Jesus answer it directly? Why? Because we often, as humans, ask the wrong questions, or we ask with the wrong motives. And of course, Jesus being God, he knows it. So, all right. Pharisees' idea of the kingdom versus Jesus' idea of the kingdom. Let's work on this. The The Pharisees, the Jewish people of the day, the religious people, their idea of the kingdom was actually the same or similar to Jesus' idea of the kingdom when it came to the future, right? The not yet part of it. All right, along with this historical earthly idea of the kingdom of God, the Jews expected a later apocalyptic and everlasting kingdom. A kingdom that's universal. And so it was obvious. It was universal. Alright? And it exceeded expectations. Obvious, universal, exceeded expectations. Jesus' idea of the future fulfillment of the kingdom, very similar. It'll be obvious, universal, 
And it will come with unexpected timing. It won't, be, it won't come when you expect it. Right? And we see this here in this passage. It's obvious. Don't worry, he says, about not knowing. It will be obvious. Right? Verse 24, he says, just like lightning comes and flashes up the sky. Right? This happened this week. First time I saw lightning here in Cayman. I used to see it all the time. It scared the tarnation out of me when I saw it here. Um, lights up the sky from one end to the other. It will be clear and obvious when I return. It's the same thing he's echoing in verse 37 where the disciples asked, well, where are we going to see this kingdom, Lord? He says, look, where there are dead bodies, vultures gather. That's all how, how it will be with the kingdom. Alright? There will be vultures everywhere. <laughs> Alright? It will be clear that my presence is here. Just like when there's dead bodies, there's vultures hovering overhead. Way to go. That's a fun, that's a fun image, isn't it? Um, universal. That's Jesus' implication here of lightning from one side to the other is that the presence of the king will be total. And finally, Jesus is saying his idea of the future kingdom that it will be unexpected in timing. People will be eating, drinking, selling, building. They're going to be getting hitched to one another. And bam! Here it is. Here it is. So in this respect, the Pharisees and Jesus are pretty similar. You follow me so far? This is important. All right. But in terms of the kingdom come now on this earth, the present fulfillment of the kingdom, I'm talking here and now in this theater, in our lives, the Pharisees' idea of the kingdom and Jesus' idea of the kingdom were radically different. The Pharisees' idea of the kingdom was shaped by an interpretation of the Old Testament a lot through um, one of the books in the Old Testament called the book of Daniel, where the Son of Man appears. It's this divine character who gets involved in history. And the Jewish people see this as the Messiah. And they were right. And they were also right that God promised that person, the Son of Man, would be a great, 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 great grandchild of King David. He'd be a glorious figure who was also a king. But they assumed their own interpretation. Because he was a king, because he was powerful, they thought he'd be a political figure who'd gather the Israelites from all corners of the earth, who'd restore Jerusalem, who'd conquer the wicked and bring untold bliss to the nation of Israel. That's key. That's where they messed up. Jesus says this about the present kingdom. He says, Look, you are looking for signs. You are looking over here from, hey, there's more Israelites. More people are coming to Jerusalem every day who are true Jewish people. That's a sign. Look over there. The wicked are finally paying for their sins. Another sign. But Jesus says the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's in the midst of you. Verse 21, you may have the translation, the kingdom of God is within you. Have you heard this before? The kingdom of God is within you. Grammatically, that's actually permissible. That's a permissible translation. But in context, it makes no sense. This is why it's good to have a good translation of the Bible. Side note. And why it's good 
And actually even better to remember to read up and read down when you read the Bible. There's a context going on here, right? You know because you've been faithfully studying Luke 15 through 18 along with me, right? So every week. And as you've done so, you remember that the Pharisees went from kind of grumbling about Jesus to outright ridiculing Jesus. And he is certainly not saying to them, oh, the kingdom of God is within you guys. Rather, he is saying, it's me! Right? I'm here right in your midst. The kingdom has arrived in flesh and blood. I've healed lepers. I've restored sight. I've spoken with authority. I've shared good news of grace. And you haven't even looked at my family tree. I'm the great, 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 great grandchild of King David himself. The promised king to come. But, since he's saying to the Pharisees, you have missed it. You've missed it. I came from a suspect birth. I came from a lowly, the lowliest of tribes. I live most of my life in this place where losers dwell. And so you've missed it. And see, this is why, notice, that Jesus no longer addresses them. After he's done saying the kingdom is in your midst and they don't get it, Jesus no longer addresses them. Look at verse 22. He begins to only address the disciples, doesn't he? Because if they miss him, if they miss the present fulfillment of the kingdom, the future fulfillment doesn't matter. If they miss Jesus, the coming of the future kingdom, there's no point in telling them about that. Who does this sound like? Who else did we look at recently who missed the point? You remember this last week? We talked about the nine lepers, right? There's so many parallels between this passage and the last. Remember, ten people were healed by Jesus. They technically obeyed him. But nine of them missed the point. They missed the king right in front of them. The person who healed them of a disease they had for their entire lives. But they got on with their own lives. And one returned to worship the king of kings. Same thing here with the Pharisees. They just missed the point. I'm in your midst. I'm right here. Transition a little here. There's no section in scripture that deals more with this idea of the kingdom of God than Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is often called the, the parables of the kingdom chapter. Alright? You get a number of these parables or stories Jesus tells about the kingdom. And I'm just going to summarize a few for you. He basically says, the kingdom has not come with power that forces every knee to bow. Rather, it's like a seed, just a seed cast on the ground which may or may not produce fruit depending on how it's received and may or may not produce fruit. In fact, only 25% of the time will it grow. Jesus says the kingdom has come, but he explains it's not going to overthrow the kingdoms of men right now. 
Instead, the kingdom of God will live right alongside the kingdom of men. Just like weeds and wheat grow alongside each other. He says the kingdom will not begin with a bang, but will begin like a tiny mustard seed. The coming of the kingdom in humility instead of glory was an utterly new and amazing concept. Humility instead of glory was a new and amazing concept. But friends, it wasn't just new and amazing, it was brilliant. It was absolutely and totally, supernaturally, otherworldly, divinely brilliant. It was brilliant because it's something you and I are incredibly drawn to. And it's something for which he receives total glory. The way Jesus does it, the way God does it through Jesus, it's just brilliant. I, I, I can't wait to share this with you this morning. But I want to make an analogy first. Remember, we talked earlier about monarchies rarely working anymore. But there's something about the kingdom of Jordan in the Middle East that somehow keeps to, seems to keep on chugging. The king there, uh, King Abdullah II, on many occasions has disguised himself and mingled with his subjects. His rationale for this unorthodox approach is to better understand his people, listen to them, understand them. So what he does, he takes the character of an ordinary old Arab man. He appears in public with a fake white beard, wearing the traditional Jordanian kufia and an Arabic white dress. While waiting in a long line, he's engaged people in conversation. And listen to their point of view. And these appearances, these incognito appearances, have marked this 50-year-old monarch's reign since he took up the throne. He disguised himself as an old man previously while visiting a hospital. Another time he circulated around Amman behind the wheel of a taxi cab. Right? It's a whole like taxi cab confessions idea. So another time he passed himself off as a TV reporter covering a story on a, at a duty-free shop. This is the king of Jordan. And we kind of like that, don't we? This idea of leadership, of a king. It's the kind of king we could get behind. We could support. The kind of leader we want. One who so humbly identifies with his people. Gets to know them what they're going through, what they're suffering. But we can't forget, don't forget the suffering it takes to humbly identify with people. Don't forget the suffering it takes to humbly identify with people. See, because we admire this king now. And no doubt, he's encouraged that he did this. Now. But then, when he actually did it, there's no doubt he played the role of a toilet. When you go around as someone in charge, disguising yourself, and you ask what people really think, you're going to get dumped on. Right? 
No doubt he heard people slander, trash the king about, you know, about him, his policies, his nepotism, maybe even his family. That's hard. It's hard to hear. Can you imagine the soul searching that ensued from there. Am I doing the right thing? I don't know if I should be king. These sorts of thoughts come into his head. I had a Lord of the Rings clip, but I'm going to skip it for time. Sorry. We respect kings like this, though. We respect kings like this because of their humble identification with their subjects. God and the man Jesus Christ has so identified with our plight, he experienced loss, sickness, and every temptation known to man. You know, the Bible says that. Every temptation, Hebrews 4, look it up. Every temptation known to man. And as is true with the earthly king I just spoke about, there is no identification without suffering. You can't identify and get down on the level of people without yourself suffering. Which brings us to the key to this entire passage. So, so far, let me review. Let's recap. Jesus introduced this radical principle in this present here kingdom that it has come humbly. It has come in an identifying manner, humbly loving manner. All right? It's radically different from what people expected. Which brings us to the key to this entire passage. Along with the humble entry of the kingdom through Jesus, there's still this future glory of the kingdom and the king. What connects the kingdom now and the kingdom to come? And more importantly, what connects us to the kingdom? How can we be a part of this kingdom? And friends, it is found this amazing part of this passage. Which is why we love studying scripture together, hopefully. It's found in these two verses. Look with me in verse 26 of chapter 17. Luke 17. Just, sorry, this is not uh, chapter 20, sorry, verse 25 of chapter 17. But first, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, in this passage, Jesus is totally talking about the future. Except for these two verses when he says, Look, first of all, the Son of Man will be rejected by this generation. And then you're going to have to do something about it. Verse 33. You're going to have to take up a cross as well. There is one sign of the kingdom that the Pharisees can expect. One grand sign that they can look to to know the kingdom has come. The sign of Jonah. I don't know if you remember this. There's another point earlier in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 12. Let's look at this briefly. Matthew 12, 38 through 40. When Jesus says this, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Here's this idea of a sign again. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, remember, Jonah went to preach 
to this wicked, adulterous people, just as Jesus did. When he refused, he was swallowed up by this great fish. He spent three days in that fish. Similarly, Jesus will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. One sign will be given to you. It's the sign of Jonah. It's a sign of Jesus dying on a cross. Spending three days in the heart of the earth and being raised again. One sign that connects us to the king. One sign that ushers in a complete and total kingdom that began with a humble king. One sign that will bring maximum glory to that king. That is Jesus Christ crucified. And that is the brilliancy of God's kingdom. Unlike King Abdullah, this king so identifies with us that he not only humbly serves us, but he does so to the point of sacrificing himself. And the most radical part, friends, isn't even the sacrifice. is that he sacrifices so that he can receive maximum glory. He gives of himself so he can receive total honor. That is radical, right? We think of glory. We think of honor for kings. We think of, we don't think of silence. We don't think of not standing up for yourself. We don't certainly think of death. How is that glorious? How is that glorious? You'd think that glory would thunder, rise up and strike. But that's exactly the point that the Apostle Paul makes. You'd think that's the case. But let me tell you something about Jesus, the Apostle Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 1, 21 and 29, you can open your Bibles there, it'll be up on the screen as well. This is important, making the connection here. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 29, Paul says this exact thing. He says... For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preached, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. There we are again, that connection to signs. Something spectacular, something great. Something that shows the king has total rule right now. In Greeks, in other words, people who are non-Jews seek wisdom. But we preach... Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man's wisdom. He goes on to say, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolishness in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Do you see that? God's simple act is greater than all of man's wisdom put together. God could have thundered, risen up, and struck 
He could have absolutely done this and it would have worked. But why not get more glory and simultaneously allow human beings to freely glorify him? And so he uses what human beings call foolishness. Jews demanded signs, and they were only given as a sign a crucified Nazarene. Crucified dude from Nazareth. When their own law clearly stated in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They would have known this. That's the way Jesus actually died. Of all ways, he he hung on a tree, on a pole of wood. That man is cursed. It's not a king. It's foolishness. You see that? And the Greeks, all others in the sort of world around Jesus, they valued reason above all else. The nobility of reason. And yet, here's a man who willingly dies the most humiliating, ignoble, despicable form of capital punishment available. And God says, that's it. That's it. That's how I will save my people. Anyone or anything could make people believe through world domination and signs. Only I could draw people to believe through such a humiliating display. Yet it is so otherworldly brilliant. No one but God could come up with this kind of idea, right? Cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. The king was cursed on a tree in order to bear the curse that you and I deserve for sin. Right? The king dies the worst death known to mankind, humiliated, despised, to forever show himself and to draw to himself the humiliated and despised of this world. Do you see that? To some, it's going to be folly. Maybe even to some of you. Foolishness. But there's something about it that's so brilliant and attractive and powerful. Again, that's how God receives maximum glory. Something as humiliating and small, even despicable as the cross. Something so glorious and awesome and worthy of praise. The king... Seeks maximum glory. So what are you going to do about it? Here's where we can apply this. What are you going to do about it? Three things you can do about this. Trust Jesus Christ crucified. Preach Jesus Christ crucified. And live Jesus Christ crucified. To bring maximum glory to the king. It's crazy. It's unbelievable. But you and I both know that there's so many things we can take credit for in life. Or we try to. But preaching, living, trusting a crucified Savior, only God can get the credit for that and the glory. Let's start with trusting Jesus Christ crucified. That's the only requirement to be part of the kingdom. 
You may have come here this morning seeking forgiveness, seeking some semblance of a blessing. But you may not know exactly what that is. Many of us came this morning just seeking something because you know your life is missing something. Right? Simple as that. We got out of bed, we came here. You know, maybe God has something for me. My friend, if this is you, be sure that you were created to glorify, to worship God Himself. You came here to glorify God because that is why you were created. This great man, uh, St. Augustine, once prayed to the Lord, My heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Friends, I want to speak personally to how true that is. Man, I grow so anxious every week. Nervous about things. Heart restless over things I worship besides the Lord. When I put my rest and my trust and my hope in the crucified Savior, I have true rest. Is your heart stirred by a king who would be glorified through such worldly shame? Is there something so crazy about this very idea that it just might make perfect sense? Becoming a curse. A curse on your behalf. Becoming a picture of humiliation so he may forever identify with our humiliation. All he asks for is your trust. Secondly, preach Jesus Christ crucified. If you want to give the king maximum glory, preach Jesus Christ crucified. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 2, if we, if we were to keep going, I forgot to put this up on the slide. 1 Corinthians 2, if we were to keep going, he actually says, look, I came to you. I came to you, church. Weakness and fear with a lot of trembling. I didn't know what to say. So I preached one thing, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The other day I was helping uh, very uh, sloppily and uh, really helping is probably stretching it, but uh, helping to paint this uh, church nursery with a number of other folks who I greatly appreciated. And um, we were talking with, uh, talking with a couple people about how hard it is to be equipped to answer people who have questions about Christianity. You know, or who believe other things. How do you do this? And man, it just feels like so much. There's so many other religions out there and so many other worldviews and ideas. How do you put them all together and defend your faith? God does call us to try to equip ourselves. Yet at the same time, ultimately the most powerful testimony we can share, indeed must share with a co-worker we pass by each day, a friend with whom we can banter about, about the World Cup. A spouse or child whom we long for to know the God we worship. The most powerful testimony is Jesus Christ crucified. Right? I found this great statement by this early church father named John Christison. A guy who lived back in the 4th century. He said, When men who seek signs and wisdom... And not only do not receive the things they seek, but even hear the contrary to what they seek. And then have their minds changed by these contraries. Does this not show the unspeakable power of him who is preached? I love this analogy. He says, it's like a doctor 
who would win patients who had been burned and wounded and were desperately in need of medicine by promising to cure them, not with drugs, but by burning them again. This would be the result of great power indeed. So also Paul won the day, not without a sign, but by a sign that seemed contrary to all human signs, Christ crucified. We've got to preach it. Thirdly, live Jesus Christ crucified. Paul says, last verse I'm going to give you here, that we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. We're always called to die to self, to put our needs, our interests aside for Jesus' sake. Why? So that Christ's life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. Through our flesh, through our everyday actions, Christ might be revealed. Christ wants to be revealed in us. What a gift. What a privilege it is, right? So it's not too small a part to play to be shown up by the crucified Christ in our lives. We're called to live Jesus Christ crucified so that he might shine through in our lives. Along with this, one of my favorite Christians who ever lived, St. Francis. St. Francis of Assisi. He's really well known as this remarkably joyful saint. I mean, this guy was happy. I had this book I meant to bring, but I forgot on the way out the door this morning. On the, on the cover of it, it's this picture of St. Francis. There weren't, of course, photographs available in the 12th and 13th century. So it's this picture of him, though, like, like almost breaking through a large paper sheath, you know, like coming through on the football field like this. That's what he looks like. All right? He's just joyful. Flowers and birds are everywhere. Singing. This man was the, the kind of joy that's I, I almost foreign to me. He preached sermons to birds. And he would just talk about Jesus so much, he would, if there weren't humans around, he would talk to birds. How joyful this guy was. I read a few years ago how you can never eat a meal in a room where there was a cross without weeping. He can never enter a room with a crucifix without shedding tears. His friends, if you want to know the joy of Christ, you have to make and rack up a lot of frequent traveler miles to the cross. People who know real joy know the greatest suffering that was ever known. That's Jesus Christ crucified. And I can't explain that with formulas. I can't tell you that in a systematic way. You just got to know and live Jesus Christ crucified to experience that kind of joy in your life for Him to shine through. And ultimately, to bring the most glory to the King of Kings who longs for you to be part of His kingdom. Let's pray. King Jesus, this is a, it's a deep and heavy word this morning, Lord. It's a hard word to grapple with. And yet there is this great mystery. 
that the kingdom is right in front of you, humbly. The kingdom is right in front of us. Humbly it has come through Jesus Christ in our midst. So humble that you gave us one sign to see and that was you, Jesus, crucified. You gave the Pharisees one sign. You gave us one sign. A king who became a curse for us. A king who was humiliated that he might identify with our humiliation. Oh, Jesus, God the Father, it is brilliant in our eyes. I pray that we would do something about it this morning. We're going to take communion here in a little bit. And that is one thing we can do about it, to celebrate Jesus Christ crucified. But help us trust you crucified. Help us preach you crucified. Help us live you crucified every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.